weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 8th, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. Kenyan ecologist Wangari Mutamathai was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. She is a leader of the Pan-African Green Belt Movement and in 2002 was appointed by Kenya's president to be Assistant Minister for Environment, Natural Resources, and Wildlife in Kenya's Ninth Parliament. She spoke recently at the American Museum of Natural History, introducing her newly published autobiography, Unbowed. I am greatly honored and privileged to be here. And as you know, I have been promoting uh, Unbowed, which uh, was just now published in paperback, and it is uh, to the big credit of Knopf that uh, after requesting, they actually managed to produce this book on 100% recycled paper. Now, as some of you may have known, this is a long journey that started back in the 70s. And it started almost by accident because I was um, uh, working at that time in the University of Nairobi. And uh, I was um, beginning to see what discrimination of gender and tribalism can mean to a young girl who, was, who had just come from the United States of America and was trying to enter into an academic institution to become a lecturer. And as part as a result of that, I joined the National Council of Women where I represented the Association of University Women. And in 1975, women wanted to have a conference and they convinced the United Nations to have a conference in Mexico in 1975. And some of the women tonight here, like Peggy Snyder, they were among those women who actually gathered and mobilized women from all over the world to convene in Mexico. And so in Kenya, like anywhere else, we were meeting around the National Council of Women of Kenya, women from all walks of life in Kenya. And I went there to represent the academic women. But when I got there, I listened to the women from the countryside, and they had a completely different story. They were not complaining about discrimination in academic institutions and such highly privileged positions. Instead, they were talking about very basic needs. They were talking about the fact that they need clean drinking water, that they need adequate nutritious food, that they need energy, which was mainly firewood, and they needed an income. Those are the four things that I actually picked in the course of the discussion. And what struck me was that all those things somehow depend on a sound environment. And it reminded me of my childhood. And those of you who have read the book know that I grew up in a very wonderful environment. It's almost nostalgic to describe that environment. But it was rich, it was fertile, it was green. 
and the rivers were clean and they were full of fish. And you know, especially trout, they don't like dirty water. They like clean, fast flowing rivers. And that's what the rivers that I knew as a child were like. Close to my stream, to, close to my has, uh, household, I actually had a small stream. It wasn't fast flowing because it was very small. And we were literally cultivating inside that little stream. My mother would planted arrow roots. Now, I don't know if you know arrow roots, but arrow roots is a, is a root crop that grows uh, almost like a tomato, but it, uh, I mean a potato, but the root is in marshy water. It does well in very wet, marshy land, in, literally in water. And the top is a green, beautiful green leaf. If you read the book, you get, I try to describe. But for me, it was fascinating, the green color. It was bright green. And it was, the leaves were kind of covered with oil. And when, and when they are not, when they are new leaves, they kind of curve upwards and they hold rainwater. And I used to see drops of rainwater dancing on these leaves and they looked silverly as they danced on the leaves. And I really was fascinated by the natural world that in which I grew. And that is the world that eventually would very much impress me and would inspire me to start the, what became the Greenbelt Movement. And so when these women are talking about need for firewood, I am thinking, what happened to all the woodlots and all the trees uh, and all the vegetation that I knew as a child. Now, I was to discover that much of that was clear-cut, partly to make way for coffee and tea bushes, and partly to make way for commercial plantations of exotic species of trees that were being imported from Australia, the eucalyptus in particular. You see them in California. Anywhere the British went, so did the eucalyptus. <laughs> and, uh, and also some of the pines from the northern hemisphere. Now, they would lit the government would literally clear-cut the mountains, the indigenous forests. And these new trees did very well. But what people didn't know at that time, uh, even foresters at the time did not know, is that when you plant these exotic species, in as a monoculture, you, you literally kill the biodiversity in that forest. And what was worse, they would allow farmers living near the forest to come and cultivate crops on these plantations so that at the same time that they are taking care of crops, they are also taking care of the tree seedlings. This way, the whole process was very cheap for the government. But what we definitely did not know then is that by converting these indigenous forests into farms of monoculture trees, we were killing the biodiversity in these forests, we were killing the ecosystem in these forests, and we were destroying or denying communities the services that they get from these forests. Now that's 
what I eventually understood very clearly, but I have found that very many people don't understand that biology, and as a result, even to this day, I'm still fighting, uh, and, and as a movement, we are still fighting the whole concept of cutting indigenous trees and removing the ecosystem and replacing it with monocultures of these exotic species of trees. Now, why are these trees important? Well, they are important because they are economically very valuable. They grow very fast. And because they grow very fast, they are loved by farmers because they can easily be turned into money. If you want telephone poles, if you want um, electric poles, if you want to build new houses that we were introducing where you need a long beam, if you want timber, straight timber, you need these exotic species. Because most tropical trees are not straight. They are crooked and they have uh, many branches. They have these branches. They have a big canopy and they don't grow upwards. They tend to grow sideways. Now that is good for the, for the tropics because it cuts down the heat and it allows for a lot of other growth under those trees. Now, I guess when God was creating these trees, he really didn't think about telephone poles. <laughs> and so nobody thinks of how they can put telephone poles on a crooked uh, branch. So quite often they would be perceived as economically unimportant. But today we know that the ecological value of these trees is extremely important, and especially in these indigenous forests. Now, when the women go back to the women and say that when the women were there for describing their felt needs in these meetings as we prepared to go to Mexico, they did not know what was happening upstream, they did not know what was happening in the forest, and they did not connect their problems with the destruction of the environment, with the cutting of trees, with the removal of the vegetation, with the destruction of the ecosystem, and therefore interference with the water system, which eventually would mean that the little water that would come down would also come with soil. It would, it would be laden with silt, and so it would not be clean drinking water such as I knew as a child. Certainly in that water there would not be fish, and certainly there would not be the tadpoles that I knew as a child. So I started to make the connections, and I encouraged the women to plant trees. Now it's a long story, and uh, it, it, it eventually culminated in the women planting trees on their own. By the way, when we first... When we, we first got that idea of planting trees and we, we went to the conservator forest and we said, can we have trees that women can plant on their farms? And the forester said, the conservator forest said, you can have all the trees you want. And I said, well, I need 15 million trees. <laughs> and he said, I am sure we can give you that many trees. 
Uh, and so I informed the women that they can go to the foresters and they can collect all the trees they need. The, clean, the Green Belt Movement, which by then we had formed, would pay the government. Uh, fortunately, these trees were highly subsidized, so they were not very expensive. But within about two to three years, the conservative forest called me and said, I don't think we can give you a women any more trees. I said, how come? He said, they are taking too many trees. I said, but you said we could take as many as 15 million. He said, I didn't think you were serious. <laughs> and that was actually a very good thing because it meant we couldn't get trees from the foresters. So we needed to produce our own trees. And that's how we moved from depending on the foresters to beginning to create our own tree nurseries. And initially the women were very um, afraid that they might not know how to do this because the concept at that time was that you needed to go to school and learn how to plant trees and get a diploma. And because the women didn't have a diploma, they said, well, we can't plant trees. But I said, well, you know, you're the ones who plant beans, you plant maize, you plant all the food crops. And the seeds of food crops are very similar to the seeds of trees. So if you can plant seed crops, you can also plant trees. So just try to get seedlings, I mean, try to get seeds initially from the local indigenous trees that you can find. And if you look at the trees when they flower, most trees when they flower, they will produce seeds. So if you keep your eyes up on those trees, you will find out when they flower and you will follow them until they produce seeds and you take those seeds when you believe they are mature, you put them in the ground, just like other seeds. If they are good, they will germinate. If they are no good, they will not germinate. Now, the women did that. But what was also fascinating is that the women also taught themselves many other techniques. They learned, for example, that some of the seeds, once they are dry, they are blown by the wind. So you can never really collect them. But they learned that when the rains come, the very first rains, the seeds will germinate. And so when you go to cultivate the very first weeds, if you are very careful and you have learned, you can separate the tree seedlings from the weeds. And you travel, you, you cultivate the field, almost like here I have a, a, a container. This is how the women would go into the field. They would have a container of water. And they would cultivate with that container in front of them. And every time they would find a tree seedling, they would put it in the water. And during the course of the day, they could collect as many as 100, 200 seedlings. If you put them in the water, nothing can happen to them. They are very happy in the water. And then in the evening, you can go and transplant them in containers and you nurture them. And that was, for me, I, I, I came to know that the women were actually uh, discovering either on their own or they were learning from each other some very fabulous techniques that helped them produce seedlings. They also learned that sometimes seeds are propagated by birds. 
So if you like a particular tree and you see that birds come there and they eat the fruit, you just have to follow the birds. When they get to do their own thing, they will perch on a, on a branch and you can just watch what is happening and whatever. If you cultivate a little bit where they are uh, doing their thing, the, the seeds will germinate. Because some of these seeds needed to go through the digestive system of the birds. And that too was an invention that I came to know about from the women. And so they learned a lot of little techniques that they taught each other. And eventually these women gained a lot of experience and a lot of confidence. And that's why in the book when we, we talk about them we say that eventually when the trees were planted by these women and the landscapes started changing. You looked at the landscapes and you really couldn't tell the difference between the trees that women plant and the trees that foresters plant. They looked exactly the same. So we called these women foresters without diplomas. And so those of you who have, who have read the book or as you will read the book, you will discover that this was a story that was not really drawn on a map. I did not have a strategic plan to follow. I was literally just moving from one step to the other. And in the beginning, it was a lot of fun, and the women were having a lot of fun planting trees. Now, they planted trees on their own land. And, but we wanted to ensure that these trees would survive, because planting trees can be easy. Making sure they survive is still a challenge for many organizations, even international organizations. It's very, very important that these trees are taken care of until they can take care of themselves. And so we came up with an idea of an incentive, that we would give the women an incentive. And this in incentive was financial, a very small token which would, we would give them for every tree seedling that survived. So we would do a lot of work of knowing how many trees they have raised, how many have been planted, how many have survived. Then we would compensate them for everyone that have survived. That has been a challenge even to this day because sometimes people will tell you exactly how many have survived. But sometimes you get people who are a bit greedy, a bit selfish, a bit corrupt, and they want to exaggerate. So instead of saying that they planted 100, greed will make them add another zero. And you add up with a thousand. But when you go to check, you find out that they were not a thousand. So the, the process of monitoring and following up trees in the Greenbelt movement is a very uh, time-consuming and um, labor-consuming exercise. And we hire people who actually go around ensuring that the trees are properly planted. Because if you don't plant them properly, they will not survive. Many people, when they plant trees, they don't dig holes that are big enough. So they kind of leave the tree with half, they, they bury the tree halfway. And if you leave some of the roots exposed to the sun, the trees will die. And so it's very, very important that the preparation is done properly. So we have a big battalion of people who go around in the countryside ensuring that the trees are properly planted, that they are protected so that they survive. 
Now, sometimes the survival rate is very good. It can be even 100%. But sometimes it can be as low as 20%. That depends sometimes on, is water available? Is the water that is being given to the trees fresh water? Sometimes people live in areas where there is no fresh water. And sometimes the water is salty water. Or sometimes the, the area is so hot that when you water the tree, the water becomes hot and burns the roots. So you have sometimes to uh, educate the women so that the, the, the watering is very early in the morning um, before it is hot or very late in the evening. Late in the evening is even better because then the tree can drink water all night without worrying about the sun. But that's the story of how the Greenbelt Movement was created from very simple beginning, not really planned to be a 30-year program, but was really inspired by Mexico and eventually became uh, a, a very big program. Now, many people ask, how come you got into trouble? Because what I have described really is very benign, and you would not expect anybody to go to jail for doing what I have just described. Well, what we discovered in the course of our work was that in order to have a multiplier effect, in order to have as many women as possible planting trees, and indeed, in the course of time, even men and children became part of the movement, we needed to educate. We, don't, we did not only need to give them an incentive, we also needed to educate them. They needed to understand what destroys the environment. What is the reason why the rivers are brown with the silt? What is the reason why you do not have firewood? Why is, what is the reason that rainfall patterns are changing? Why is it that the forests are clear-cut? Why do we have eucalyptus in our forests instead of the indigenous trees? And why is this forest being cleared to be replaced by housing? Things like that. And this led us to discuss the management. And of course, we were right inside the government because the government is the custodian of these common goods. And the government is supposed to guide citizens on how to manage these resources. So we started uh, bringing out the fact that many of our leaders were corrupt, that many of them were managing these resources not for the common good, but for their own uh, enrichment, that they were privatizing these goods, and that they were destroying them, that they were the ones who were clear-cutting these forests and planting these monocultures just mainly for economic reasons. And so the government said, that's not right. It's okay to talk about planting trees, but it is not good to tell people how the environment is destroyed. Because that means you are telling people that the government is irresponsible. And I said, well, that's exactly what we want people to know is that the government is the irresponsible. And, and, yet, and yet the government is supposed to be a custodian. And so we learned in the process that governments 
uh, although governments are custodians of the common goods or of the commons like the mountains, the parks, the rivers and all that, if citizens are not well informed, if citizens are not engaged, if citizens do not understand their system of governance, they will not challenge their leaders and their leaders will get away with everything they do. And leaders anywhere, maybe not here, but anywhere, <laughs> if they are not challenged by their citizens, will do terrible things to the environment because they are thinking about themselves, they are thinking about how to be elected the next time rather than the common good. Quite often they may not be thinking about the future generations, they are thinking about now. And so we needed to make our people understand that some of the problems we are talking about have been brought by misgovernance and that we need to straighten out our governments. We need to hold our leaders accountable. And if they are not accountable, we need to punish them at the voting, uh, at the voting box. We need to vote them out. Now, to stop us holding these kind of discussions, um, the government was able to go back to our laws and uh, some of which had been sneaked in uh, into our law system that said, for example, that you cannot meet if you are more than nine. And, and so if, if you are more than nine, gee, many families would have been arrested <laughs> because they are more than nine. So these were laws that we are put in place to ensure that people don't meet, that people don't discuss, that people don't inform each other. So we had to be very creative to be able to continue these education programs. And the education program is a very, very important program. It is the most, to me, important program of the uh, of the Green Belt Movement, because that was, that's what will sustain the movement. That's what will ensure that even if today the movement was not there, people would continue to do what they know is right. And today it is very, very satisfying in Kenya to see people not calling the Green Belt Movement, but quite often challenging the authorities themselves, especially when they privatize common lands or they privatize green open spaces or they privatize forests or road reserves. It is the people themselves. And this is due to this education program. It is this same education program that eventually convinced people that the only way to get rid of that government is to vote it out. And as you know, those of you who have been following uh, politics in Kenya, in the year 2002, we were able to actually vote that government which had been in power for 24 years and almost seem, in fact, they were bragging that they will be in power for the next 100 years. And we were able to get it out in the year 2002 when I found myself in parliament now telling them what to do. Now, we, I want to say that um, this, this kind of work why did it attract the Norwegian Nobel Committee? This work attracted the Norwegian Nobel Committee because for the first time, 
in its history, the Norwegian Nobel Committee wanted to send a new message to the world. Normally, in many situations, if you read the history, they were actually dealing with people who were trying to bring warring parties together, people who were trying to negotiate peace between warring countries, warring parties, people who were working for human rights issues, uh, and, um, and such. But in the year 2004, they saw an opportunity to bring a new, yes, a new, um, a new issue to the world. And that was the fact that many of the wars we fight in the world, and as I speak, I want to invite you to really think of any war, any conflict, anywhere in this world, locally or regionally, or even globally. One war that is not being fought over access, control, and distribution of resources. It's about who is going to access these resources, who will use them, who will control them, who will distribute them, who will be included, who will be excluded. If you know of any war that is not around that issue, below the camouflage of religion, of ethnicity, of races, it is about resources. And this is <clears throat> the message that the Norwegian committee wanted to send, therefore, is that, yes, we can live in peace if we respect the rule of law. Yes, if we can live in, in peace if we respect human rights. But if we really want to live in peace in the future, and considering that we have only this one planet, and considering that we have very limited <clears throat> resources on this planet, it's very important for us to rethink peace and security. To understand that to be able to live in peace, we need to manage the limited resources we have, very responsibly and very accountably. That we need to learn to share these resources more equitably. And that, and that the only way we can do this is if we govern ourselves in an economic and political system that respects human rights, that respects the rule of law, that promotes inclusivity rather than exclusion, that allows the voice of the minority to be heard, even if the majority will nevertheless have their way. An economic system that believes that indeed we have only one planet and we have only one people and we have resources that are extremely limited. If we do that, we are more likely to preempt the causes of war and conflict. If we don't do it, because we can choose not to, if we don't do it, we are more likely to cause conflict because people who feel excluded, exploited, manipulated, marginalized, sooner or later try to seek justice their own way. And as they seek justice, they will threaten our peace and security. 
wherever we are in the world. And so it is in our interest as a human species to learn this, to embrace this concept, to try to understand it, to try to embrace it if we truly want to live in peace, to work for peace, to walk towards peace by doing what is right, by doing what is fair, by doing what is just. It is, therefore, virtually impossible to have peace in a world where a small number of people are extremely wealthy, are enjoying much of the wealth of the world, and masses of people are living in dehumanizing poverty. It's not possible to have peace in such a world. I know I have to, um, to close, but I want to say that some of the things that we are doing um, <clears throat> is to address an issue that I know at the moment is very, very important to all of us, and that is climate change. And I know this is a subject that is in, on everybody's lip. For me, one of the ways in which I, I and the Green Belt Movement, the United Nations Environment Program, and another organization in Nairobi called ICRAF, the International Center for Agroforestry. And I know during the Clinton Global Initiative, this issue is going to be discussed. We are trying to say that as we discuss measures that need to be taken to mitigate the negative impact of climate change, it's very important for us to at least do the doables. And one doable is to protect forests, wherever they are, and to protect especially the major blocks of forest within the tropics, because scientists are telling us that that's where the most negative impact will be felt. And we have the, the forest of Congo, we have the forest of the Amazon, and we have the Southeast Asia Mount, uh, forests. These three blocks of forests are huge. They are extremely important if you are going to do something positive about climate change because they are major carbon sinks. And even as they stand there, they are doing so much work for us, even as we drive, as we fly. Uh, and so it is extremely important for us to protect them. And so I have become the goodwill ambassador of the Congo forest ecosystem. And I'm working closely with uh, the 10 governments that are in that region, which have come together and they have committed themselves to protect that forest if they would also be assisted by other governments, and especially the governments in G8, because these are governments which, whose countries have contributed the highest amount of greenhouse gases so that without blaming each other and without wasting our time in saying who is to blame, we work together to try to do what is important, what is doable, so that we do not pass uh, an impossible burden to our future generations. And in this connection, I want to thank the British government, which has committed $100 million for this initiative in the Congo forest.
The new Prime Minister of uh, Britain, Mr. Gordon Brown, committed this money when, even before he became the Prime Minister. And he asked the former Prime Minister of Canada, uh, the Honorable um, Paul Martin and myself, to co-chair uh, a trust fund and into which they would put the first group of money, and that was $100 million. And so, as I speak, we are creating that um, uh, trust fund, and we are very excited about it. It's a very heavy responsibility. We, we hope that uh, we shall receive all the support that is needed so that we can raise awareness, not only of the Congo forest, but also of all the forests in the world. At the same time, many of you know that we launched a billion tree campaign throughout the world, trying to encourage people to plant trees. But much more important than just the number of trees is to raise awareness on the fact that we do not have to wait until we do the big things or wait until our governments do the big things. We, as individuals and citizens of this planet, can do something. And there can't be anything more easy or easier than planting a tree. You just dig a hole and you put a tree and you water it and Lord and behold, the Lord provides the rain and the sun and before you know, it's taller than you. And um, I want to share with you uh, the fact that recently I went to Japan uh, and as I was sharing this message with the Japanese, uh, they told me about a concept called motainai, which is a Japanese concept of do not waste resources. Do not, uh, yeah, do not waste resources. Be grateful. Be thankful for all the resources that you have. And I was very impressed. But they told me that this used to be a traditional, almost a Buddhist concept. But the Japanese don't use it anymore because they are so wealthy. They are not, they are ashamed to save. So I told them, well, you know what? Uh, perhaps you shouldn't be so ashamed to save because, you know, there is many of the resources you use here are actually coming from other parts of the world. And, for example, I said, just imagine how many trees are cut to produce chopsticks. <laughs> and imagine what would happen if the Japanese would recycle their chopsticks the way they used to do in the past. And the Japanese were so great, uh, gracious, uh, they adopted this, they, they started actually using this word, motainai. Because I wasn't quite sure how to communicate to the Japanese, I started telling them, I've come here in Japan and I'm sharing with you the concept of motainai. And they were amazed that I knew about motainai. And I said, well, I didn't know. I learned it here. But in our part of the world, we, it is equivalent to reuse, recycle, reduce. And, and also during that visit, I learned that um, uh, everybody, all of us here now, we are breathing. We are breathing. And we are breathing out carbon dioxide or air that is full of carbon dioxide and we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. And I learned in Japan that in order for you to stay alive, you need 10 trees. So as I close, I want to encourage you to make sure you know where your 10 trees are. 
so that you do not suffocate in your own carbon dioxide. And I want to say that um, uh, there are many of you who may, who may actually want to know more about the Green Belt Movement, and I want to give you the website for the Green Belt Movement. It's greenbeltmovement.org, uh, and uh, some of the people who work for the Green Belt Movement are in the audience. I particularly want to mention uh, Wajera Mathai and her husband there in the audience. I know Chris. Chris Toot is our North America director. He's based in Washington, D.C., but I don't think he made it tonight. But just before I finish, uh, we are promoting the book. You know, it's, easy f- it's very easy for me to forget that uh, I've been brought here by Knopf <laughs> so that I can promote this book. And so I do want to share with you some aspects of the book. And um, I left my glasses, so I'm going to struggle here. Um, but I want to read with, for you um, what happened to me when, when I first went to school. Many people have wanted to know, how did you get uh, to come from uh, literally nowhere? To, and, and, and end up in Oslo. And I say, well, this is where I came from. My, my first day, I, I am, those of you who have read the book, you know that um, it was my brother who asked my mother why I don't go to school. Uh, it was my brother who asked my mother, why doesn't Wangari go to school with us? Because my two brothers ahead of me, we are going to school. That was expected. But me, I wasn't. That was also expected. And so my brother said, how come she doesn't go to school? Which shows that men are not biased when they are young. And so my brother has asked the question and and my mother has said, there is no good reason why I don't go to school. So the next thing I know, I'm going to school. So this is my first day in school. And my first day at Hither Primary School sticks with me. And actually, it is what happened before I got to school that is most vivid. I had a, a slate. I don't know whether you people know a slate, but it is a, a, my, a mini blackboard, which we used to use at that time. We didn't use paper. Paper was too expensive. So you, you did your exercises on a, a slate. And then when you actually did the homework for the teacher, you did it on the exercise book. So I had a slate and an, an exercise book and a pencil to write with and a simple bag made from animal skin. Later on, my uncle gave me a cotton bag from the shop he owned. Although it would not have been unusual for a girl of eight to walk the three miles to school alone, my cousin, whose name was Jonathan, nicknamed Jono, came to pick me up and take me to school. He was a little older and could already read and write. As we walked barefoot along dirt, the dirt path up the hill to the clearing where the primary school stood, <clears throat> my cousin suddenly stopped and sat down at the side of the road. He beckoned me to do the same. Uh, do you know how to read and write? He asked. No, I don't. I replied. Well, Can you write at least? He said, trying his best to intimidate his little cousin. I told him that I could not. 
I'm not even sure I knew what writing was really, but I did not want to let on that much. Well, let me, let me show you something. He said mysteriously, and I said, what's that? I let, uh, he said, let me show you how to write. He took out his exercise book and wrote something on it with a crayon-like pencil, which you had to lick in order to get it to write. Believe me, cousin Jomo made the most of that lick. He then presented me with what he had written. Now, of course, I couldn't understand what he had scrawled on this page, but I was mightily impressed. Wow, so you can write. I said, my eyes widening. My cousin nodded and then did something I thought was truly miraculous. He took an eraser out of his bag and rubbed out what he had written. The writing simply disappeared. I had never seen an eraser before and it seemed like magic. Can you do that? He asked me with more than a touch of pride. No, I can't, I replied sadly, thinking my cousin was some kind of a genius. <laughs> this is what you will learn in school, he noticed, he, he intoned. With that, we continued our journey. I never forgot that day. It was a great motivation for me. How I longed to be able to write something and rub it out. <laughs> when I finally learned to read and write, I never stopped because I could read, I could write, and I could rub out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Find out about all events taking place at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere in New York at our website, scienceandthecity.org. 